All right, sermon time. If you got a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 16 this morning. We are in week two of a series entitled, This is God's Church. That statement right there is a statement that we've kind of gone back to over the last five years as a church. One of our elders, Frank, by the way, it's Frank's birthday today. So happy birthday, Frank. Uh, He kind of circled this up at the beginning. He was like, you know, if we're going to do this, like we're all going to agree that this is God's church. And it's just a statement that we've hung on to. And it just happens to be biblical too. So that's helpful as well. And what this series is, is explaining uh, who it is or what kind of house, uh, said a different way, what kind of house we want to build. Now that language is from Isaiah 66, where uh, God through the prophet Isaiah poses the question, what kind of house will you build for me? Now, ultimately, we know that this is God's church, and unless the Lord built the house, it'd be built in vain. But under the headship of Christ, he empowers his church to build something. He builds it. We get to be a part of the building, right? The metaphor I've used before, it's like when I'm mowing the lawn or something and Reagan wants to come out and help me. The other day, I was, um, I was sweeping up all of the, the grass from the clippings, and Reagan came out with a, um, a, a snow scraper and was trying to scrape the grass along with me. Very cute. Very unhelpful. Now, <laughs> we're probably slightly more helpful than that in the building of God's church, but we know that ultimately it's his, but he, he, he uses us. In Second Chronicles chapter 6, Solomon's praying this big prayer, and in it, he says that God is uncontainable. He says, who can contain you? This house I built certainly can't contain you. But the whole premise of my sermon last week as we opened up this series is that we can't actually build houses or churches that contain an uncontainable God by the way that we end up building the house. I laid out five of them. I'm going to walk through those five, um, probably spending two weeks on each five over the next 10 weeks. And so there is our summer. By the time this series is over, you will be going back to school if you're in school. And so that's kind of where, um, where we're headed. Today, we're going to start with what is, uh, I guess, most important, and that is the foundation. What is the foundation of the church? See, the, the first church or house that I brought up last week that can contain God is the powerless house, the powerless house. And the powerless house is powerless because it has a weak foundation. I want to explain what that means this morning. Now, imagine you were in the market for buying a house, which would not be super fun right now. But imagine you were in the market to buy a house and the realtor laid out the house to you and you walked through it and you're like, oh, there's some beautiful rooms. Like, I love that. And oh my goodness, there's two fireplaces and how gorgeous is that? And look at this deck. And and you walk through it and you think, man, this house is perfect. I want to buy this house. And then the realtor says, I think everything about this house is perfect. I do want to let you know that uh, everything you've seen is great. And also the foundation is like 90% secure. Would you buy the house? Not at asking price, unless asking price was very appropriate to a bad foundation. Because you know that 90% of a foundation in a house is 100% going to lead to headaches. And so you wouldn't buy the house not even with 90% of a good foundation. The church that Jesus built has a foundation, and it is essential that we understand 100% of that foundation, not 90, not 92, not 87, 
100%. For from the, the ground of that foundation, Jesus made his claims about his church, but it comes off of the right foundation. So that's where we're headed this morning. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 16. He says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then he says this, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, this statement that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, this will be the foundation that the church must stand on for all of time. And if it does, Jesus makes these promises, that he will build the church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and that he will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven to that church, and whatever they bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever they loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, but only to the church that stands on that foundation, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, they're posing the question, who do people say that the son of man is? At that point in time, those disciples pretty much represent the entire church. And so I think it is a fair comparison to say that when we see this question asked, who do people say that the Son of Man is, as Jesus asked the disciples, so we are asked today, the church is asked, who does the world say that Jesus is? Who does the world say that Jesus is? And so this morning, what I want to do is answer that question. Who does the world say that Jesus is? Now, I will say that there is a segment of society and culture I think this is still a relatively small part who completely dismisses Jesus, says he's the worst, we hate Jesus, and, uh, uh, and we don't even want to talk anything about him unless it's negative. For the most part, what we still see in our society are distortions of the biblical Jesus. And this morning, what I want to do is point those out. I want to point those out because those distortions creep their way into culture and they creep their way into the church. And as they do, they chip away at the foundation. And when the foundation is not strong, something that is powerful can become weak. Let me give you an example. A couple years ago, I was at a birthday party at a place that won't be named, but there were trampolines. And some of you get that joke, some of you don't. It's okay. And as I was there, this was a birthday party for Lily Kovacs. She was turning 11. Now, Lily is a pretty athletic gymnast, but she's an 11-year-old girl, okay? And Lily, I was there at the birthday party, and we decided that we were going to do the joust over uh, on the battle beam, right? And then you fall into the, you know, the mats or whatever. And so I got on there, and Lily got on there, this, you know, puny 11-year-old girl, and me, this strapping, strong 32-year-old man, Right? And um, I don't know if I sneezed or if, if something happened or maybe I was trying to rescue a little kid or something, but I lost my footing and I don't know if it was the air conditioning or Lily, but somehow I ended up in, in the mat and lost the jousting battle, okay, to Lily, the 11-year-old demon girl, sorry. And, and I lost, okay, um, to, to an 11-year-old girl in a battle of strength. Okay? Now, 
it was because I lost my footing on the balance beam. Okay, I'm stronger than her, I promise. I hope. And losing my footing, please follow the metaphor and believe me, um, losing the footing made me lose my strength, made me lose the battle. When the church loses its footing and its sure foundation, then the weak, powerless 11-year-old girls of the world can take down anything. And in a moment, what was supposed to be powerful, what is supposed to be strong, is lying on the ground in defeat. And the way that happens is when the foundation is chipped away. Sometimes it's hard to see because people will use language that'll try to make us think that they're on the same team. And they'll try to use little words and they'll go, oh no, we probably agree. Yeah, we agree. No, maybe we don't. Do we agree? And I'll show you some of these. And unfortunately, this is not just a secular, irreligious culture right now. This is the church losing its ground, losing its footing. So that's where we're going today. Jesus said, who does the world say that I am? Who does the world say that I am? And they responded with, well, a bunch of prophets. Now, most of these prophets or some of these prophets are held in high regard and high esteem by the people who would say that. And so what they're saying is that Jesus is a good thing, but he's not a God thing. He's a good thing, but he's not the only thing. He's a good thing, but I don't want to believe him all the way. He, he, he's partially good, but not completely good. He's kind of there, but he's not all the way there. There's a reservation. And I would say that what the world, how the world answers the question today of who do they say Jesus is, is similar. There's many who would say he's a good thing, but he's not a God thing. He's a good thing, but he's not the perfect thing. And he's a good thing, and he's certainly not the only thing. He is one of many things. And after Jesus asks the question and they give their answer, clearly Jesus isn't satisfied with the answer because then he turns around and he goes, who do you say that I am? And he doesn't say anything good or declarative about their answer. He says it about the disciples' answer, not the first answer, the second answer, which means the first answer was incomplete. There had to be more. And what stands in the, in, in the middle of, of, of human history or what stands in your life as the pivotal question is who do you say that Jesus is? It's the question that matters right now. It's the question that matters in eternity. And the question that matters for the church is who do we say that Jesus is? Do we answer the question like the disciples did that he's a good thing but not a God thing? He's a good thing but he's not the perfect thing. He's a good thing but there needs to be a little bit more of a thing. Or do we answer like the disciples did in the second, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God? Now, here's how I believe the world answers the question today. Let me give you a couple examples. Number one, that he is an example. Like Jesus is a great example. 
And there are many who you could ask, and you say, tell me about Jesus. And they say, oh, Jesus, he is such a fantastic example. And this can cross the spectrum. There are some people who will say, you know what Jesus is? He's a good example of holy living. We should look to Jesus as a great religious figure. And you know what? We need more religion. I remember the good old days when people were moral and they did good things and we didn't believe crazy things in our culture. And so I can uphold or applaud Christianity because it leads to morality in culture. And Jesus is a good picture. I'm going to use my words carefully. He's a good picture of conservative holiness. And so some people even uphold Jesus and say, look how good of a life he lived. He's a great example of that. And then there are some who will swing the pendulum all the way to the other side. And you can hear it now in churches and other places. And they'll look at them and say, tell me about Jesus. And they'll go, Jesus was the original radical progressive. He was. Look how he championed women's rights before it was even a thing. Look at the words that he used about the inclusive nature of his community. Look how Jesus went and, and, and he loved people that no one else would love. Jesus was anti-establishment, don't you know? He flipped over the tables. He revolted against the patriarchal society. Jesus is the, the banner, the original revolutionary. And the pendulum will swing that way. And so you'll have a, a group of people over here who today we would call leftists and they would say, yeah, we can like Jesus. Look at his love. And then you have a group over here and they'll say, if everybody just went back to church and was moral and good and followed the Bible, then everything would be perfect. But the gospel is not 1950s America, nor is it Marxist dream. It's neither. It's something better than both. Something greater than both. And then there are some, and they're like, I want to stay out of all of that. Jesus is just a good example of sacrificial love. Like, you know, on Memorial Day, when we commemorate those who have, have, have fallen, right? And we, we remember them, rightfully so, right? And, and, and we're like, okay, for, for, for like a day, can we forget politics? Like for just a day, right? Maybe. There are those who are like, okay, let, let's, just, let's just put all of that aside. And can't we just, up, like, let's not get into the, this uh, and this and this. And, like, Jesus was good. He was good, wasn't he? He was good. Look at him. He died for people. That is admirable. And then all along in these different ways, what people will do is the ones who are championing this over here, they'll look and they'll go, man, I hope those people know about sin. And these people over here, they'll go, do they even know the Jesus of love? And on both sides, because by the way, this text sits right in the middle of Jesus refuting overtly religious doctrine and then afterwards, Jesus looking at um, Peter, who gives a response about Jesus's death that we would call a modern progressive response to Jesus when he says, oh, you don't have to die. You don't have to die for sin. It's not that big of a deal. And Jesus goes, oh, yes, I do, Satan. And on the other side, Jesus goes, let me warn you. Or before he gives this, he says, let me warn you about the doctrine of the Pharisees, the hyper-religious. He 
launches his church in the midst of a warning against both. Against both. As if to say what? He's something altogether better. Altogether better than even one of those. Either one of those. And so the first way that, that, that we begin to sort Jesus is either on right or left. We begin to just make Jesus about the thing that we care about, holiness and morality in society. Or we make Jesus about radical, inclusive love, and we ignore the other sides. And we make Jesus our great example on whatever we want him to be the example of. I'll point out why these things are all a problem in the future. In the future. Today in the future. Second, people will say, oh, Jesus, he was a great teacher. And where this typically goes is people will lift up the Beatitudes. Even like modern culturalists will be like, look at the Beatitudes. Aren't they brilliant? What if we all just lived by the Beatitudes? What if we loved our neighbor as ourself? And what if we um, would do unto others as, 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 as we would have them do unto us? And uh, what if we went the extra mile? And, and, and blessed are the peacemakers. And there's a lot of people culturally who don't embrace the full picture of Jesus who will say, the Beatitudes are brilliant. What a fantastic teacher. What an incredible communicator. I mean, obviously there was something powerful. Look at how many people would flock to him. And we should uphold Jesus's teachings. We should look at them and we should use them to help us understand humanity and help us to understand culture. And Jesus is helpful. As the great other teachers of different eras and generations have been helpful, Jesus is helpful. And people will um, stimulate their intellectual curiosity and they'll look at Jesus and say, okay, now if you follow the, the culture, don't you see what Jesus was doing in the society that he was making? If you follow that, look how cool that would be. He's a great teacher. And then a third a third, people will say, well, Jesus, he was, I mean, just a great man. I mean, from a leadership perspective alone, look what he built. I mean, obviously we wouldn't want to look at it this way, but we don't look at it this way. But, but if you look at Jesus as like, like an entrepreneur, goodness, he owns his own country. The Vatican, if you're not following me. Like, this guy knows what he's doing. He knows how to build something. He knows how to grow something. Look at the movement. I mean, how could we ignore Jesus? Like, like he started something that has shifted and shaped nations and wars in the world. What? A great man. We can't forget about Jesus. We need to remember Jesus, and we need to remember him alongside all of the other great men and women through the eras who have shaped the world. And what happens then is, is, is there are um, then, then even churches, there are even Christians then who, what they'll do is they'll try to propagate these messages in order to draw people in. So in one way you could do that, like, do you miss the moral nation you grew up in? Come join us. Do you want, do, do you want to be a part of a revolution? Come see the, the first Right, and, and we'll use this, and, and we'll try to, we'll even communicate in these ways, and we'll look at people in our college campuses, right, where these intellectual things are going. Like, have you thought about the intellectual prowess of Jesus? As if we can intellectually trick somebody into following him. 
here's the problem. That was not the Jesus of the Bible. And it was not the Jesus that the first church proclaimed. That the Jesus of the Bible and the Jesus that the first church preached was strikingly different than the Jesus that I've just explained. And when we follow, worship, or build a church on that Jesus, Christ makes no promise that he will build it, no promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and no promise that it will have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. It will be a powerless church. For it is on the real Jesus that Christ makes those promises on that foundation. Which means then we have to look at each of these three things that the world says, this is who Jesus is. He is the great example. He is the great teacher. He is the great man. And we have to look and say, but who did Jesus say that he was? Who did Jesus say that he was? And let me just refute each of these. I'm actually going to do it in reverse order. They, the world would say that Jesus is a great man. By the way, we see this in the text when he then transitions and says, who do you say that I am? And they say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, which means the chosen one or the chosen Messiah, the son of God. That's who you are. By the way, earlier, don't you see how Jesus said he referred to himself as the son of man and then they referred to him as the son of God and he affirms both? He's showing in there his dual nature of man and God all in the text. He's, like, he's just wrapping everything up for us in one text. The refute that Jesus is just a great man. Here's the problem with that. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says these words, I and the Father are one. Maybe you're familiar with the C.S. Lewis argument that Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Have you heard that? Like, Jesus either was lying, he's crazy, or he's something else worthy of our worship. For the world will look at Jesus and say, he's a great man, let's honor him, let's celebrate him like everyone else. And Jesus says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one, that he is fully God, that he was there at the beginning, that he helped speak creation into existence, that he is over all things, that he holds all things together, that nothing happens without his knowledge, that he is God. And he's not just God like there's gods out there. He is the God, and God has a name, and it's Yahweh. It's not Allah. It's Yahweh, and he's God. And that God, Yahweh, is Father, Son, and Spirit, and Jesus is the Son part. And they exist in a Trinitarian nature, and Jesus is fully God, which is why he had to be born of a virgin birth. And so when churches start chipping away at doctrine, one of the first ones they get rid of is the virgin birth. It's like, we can't explain it. And you know what's happening there? Chip, chip, chipping away. You're letting Lily walk right in and knock you over. You just start chipping away at doctrine. And Jesus made it very clear that he claimed divinity. Now, here's how people will distort this. You could be in a church and you would say, do you believe that Jesus is God? And they'll say, oh, Jesus, what a divine creature. Like, oh, okay, we must be on the same page. And then somebody else walks in and they're like, what a divine creature. And you're like, wait a minute. (laughs) And, and, And what's underneath this is this idea that like, well, we're all just, we're all kind of children of God, born in the image of God. We're all, we're all kind of God-like. Well, like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 hold on. 
I don't believe that Jesus is God-like, like I'm God-like. I believe that Jesus is God, completely different than me. And these ideas, they begin to permeate and they chip away, and they chip away. Number two, second uh, thought, he's a great teacher, he's a great prophet, right? But if he, Jesus is a great teacher, then we have to look at the entirety of his teaching. So let's look at all of his teaching. Let's start in the one that the, um, the modernists love the most, which is the Beatitudes, which talks about, right, the, the, often propagated like this is the, look at Jesus and his inclusive nature and what he's, he's building and all of that. Like you just look into the Beatitudes, it's brilliant, it's beautiful, all of that kind of stuff. Well, let's get to the end of the Beatitudes. Let's just go all the way through them. We get to Matthew chapter 7. This is how Jesus, the great teacher, ends the Beatitudes. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus ends the Beatitudes by saying, and not everyone's going to get in. And so the idea of Jesus as this uh, inclusive, um, all about love type of being who just lets everybody in regardless isn't present in the scriptures. Because even at the end of his famous teaching, he goes, not everyone's going to get in. And then he says this, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, he's talking about judgment day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? What is he saying? He's saying not even all the good ones are going to get in. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. And when he says depart from me, he's not saying like, go into the other room for a little bit while I collect my thoughts. Okay? Like, I need a moment. You've triggered me, right? Like, what he's saying is, depart from me. Depart from me. Forever, in eternity, in a place called hell. Like, depart. Leave. You don't get to be here anymore. And so we, we, you'll hear, like, Jesus is a great teacher. We need to understand his teaching. Well, let's understand all of his teaching then. Jesus set himself up as judge over humanity. All of it. He set himself up as the judge. Third, people say, oh, Jesus, he's, he's just, he's a great example. He's a good example. He's almost like a guide, like a Sherpa, right? Like just kind of follow him through the mountains. Get your Birkenstocks and let's walk behind Jesus, okay? I like Birkenstocks, they're great, but... Here's the problem with this. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is making an unbelievably, unequivocal, exclusive claim. I'm the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so when we begin to hear about Jesus as being the guide or Jesus as one of the guides or Jesus as one of the paths or one of the avenues to reach a place of salvation, and by the way, the religions of the world, all they are is a way to obtain your own righteousness. But we operate in a relationship with God where we're not trying to obtain righteousness, we're receiving it. That's completely different. Because all of the religions of the world are, how do I work to obtain? And by the way, they're all religions. Atheism is a religion. 
New ageism is a religion. It's all about how do I arrive at a place of peace? How do I arrive at a place where God, which becomes me in that case, is happy with myself? And then what Christianity is, is the one that looks up and says, we can't do it because we're the problem. And then Jesus does it for us. He does it for us. And by the way, you know what's interesting? I'm just going to say this. The Jesus who makes the most exclusive claim that he is the way, the truth, and the life, something the modernists will rebel against. Oh, the exclusivity of Christianity. Yeah. Has created what? The most inclusive entity in the world. Every nation, tribe, and tongue. The most diverse entity bringing in people from every economic class, every race, right? Standing on the truth of his claim that he is the way, the truth, and the life. It means also then that in that moment, what Jesus is saying is that every other way is not the way, the truth, or the life. That every other way is the wrong way, is the falsehood, and is death. The opposite of the way, the truth, and the life. The wrong way, falsehood, and death. So let me just walk it out for you. Atheism is the wrong way, and it leads to death. Islam is the wrong way, and it leads to death. Judaism is the wrong way, and it leads to death. Tom Cruise and Scientology are the wrong way, and they lead to death. Mormonism is the wrong way, and it leads to death. There is only one way, truth, and life, and it's Jesus. And it's Jesus. But then, and you have to see all of it. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus takes all of this and he wraps it up. Yeah, he's the judge. Yeah, he's the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah, he's God. Oh, but in Mark 10, 45, he shows us how he's a God and a way and a truth and a life and a judge like none other. For in Mark 10, 45, he says these words. Where are those words? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many that the one who is judged, the one who is God, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life came down to earth, not to elevate himself over humanity, but to humble himself to them for all people. And he became the ransom payment. And he had to be the ransom payment because he was the only one who was fully God and fully man. He had to be the ransom payment, because only his perfect sacrifice would count. And so Jesus becomes the ransom payment. Why a ransom payment? Ransom is needed when you are held captive because the world and every individual in it is held captive to sin and to death. And Jesus' death on the cross is the ransom payment for our captivity. 
Jesus' death on the cross is not just an example, it is the payment for our sins. And we can't look at a Jesus and say, he must not care about sin if he was willing to die for it. Jesus knew the stakes of it. He knew that none of us could pay it. The only benefit of the national debt is that it helps us understand the insurmountable debt that we owed. (laughs) And if I told you to pay it off before you died, there's not enough cryptocurrency in the world to help you. And that is the debt that all men owed. The debt that all men owed because of sin. And Christ came and died on the cross as the payment for sin to bestow upon us a righteousness that we could never earn. And this was the message of the church from the very beginning. It's why the church worked. It's why it took off. It's why the Holy Spirit poured its power down onto it because it refused to change this gospel. My entire premise for this sermon, by the way, is this idea, that the quickest path for the church to lose its power is to diminish Jesus, change the gospel, and shift to culture. That when the church believes like the world, thinks like the world, and gives into the world's pressures, then it no longer has a reason to exist. But when the church knows the Jesus of the Bible, the one who was the ransom payment for sin, then it has every reason to exist and is absolutely critical. And the message from the very beginning has been clear. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you, this is Paul writing, as a first importance, what is more important than anything else, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. The message of the gospel from the beginning has been this. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus died for your sins. The message of the gospel is not Jesus died to create a moral society. Jesus died to create an inclusive society. Jesus died to be a picture of love. Jesus died so that we might have good intellectual stimulating conversation around the best way to set up our life. No, Jesus died because of sin. And he died for your sin because he loves you. And then he rose from the grave. He was buried and he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Peter and a whole bunch of other people because the movement of the church has always been based upon people understanding that Christ died for their sins and rose from the grave. We don't need to confuse the message. The reason the church has always grown is because it has professed that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he died for sins and he rose triumphantly out of the grave. That has been the message from the beginning. It must remain the message. And anything outside of that is chipping away, creating a weak foundation. And that church does not have the promise that it will be built or that hell will not prevail against it or that it will have the keys to anything. Like the powerless church. I won't even go there. Okay. The powerless church that shifts or changes Jesus does not sit under the promise that he made here in Matthew 16. In fact, I would say it could sit in opposition to it. 
That's who Jesus was talking to in Matthew 7 when he said, you're going to say that you knew me and you did things for me and I never knew you. This Jesus, the biblical Jesus, must be held on to. In Acts chapter 5, let me end here. Acts chapter 5. Let me find my notes real quick. Acts chapter 5, this is the first time that culture has affronted the church. First time. It's the first time that culture has said to the church, stop. Like, stop. You just can't do this anymore. And this is not, by the way, too much different than what we see right now when culture will look in and they'll say, all right, church, if you want to feed the poor, that's great. Keep it up. Church, uh, if you want to champion morality, good, that's fine. Keep it up as long as it's a morality that we agree with. Church, if you want to um, be a place of hope for people in the midst of troubling times, that's okay and that's good. There's something good about that. There's something beneficial about that to society. Go ahead and keep championing that message. But church, we need you to stay within that lane. And some churches have said, okay, we'll be good citizens and we'll stay inside of this lane. And we'll do these good deeds and we'll, we'll be a part of creating this better society and we'll hold on to this. But that has never been the message of the church. In Acts chapter 5, the, the, the first church, uh, I'm just going to summarize them, they get thrown into prison, and then they're going to be released out of prison because they've done something good. And people say to them, you can go back into your houses, and you can do your little things like your prayers, and your talking, and you're helping each other, and you're sharing your good deeds, and all of that kind of stuff. Like, go back and hide and do that. But what you can't do anymore is profess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Why did culture do that? Why were they doing it then? And why were they doing it now? Because under the leadership of the ruler of this world, Satan, he knows that if he can destroy the foundation, then the promise of Matthew 16 isn't true. He knows if he can destroy the foundation, then the church will not be built and the gates of hell, the gates of hell, and they can look a hundred different ways. The gates of hell of, of government oppression. The gates of hell of apathy. The gates of hell of people saying, you know what? The gospel might not go forth, but as long as we have a moral society, it's okay. The gates of hell of progressivism throwing out sin. All of them. They'll easily prevail against the church. They'll derail it, and the church will end up like me in a pit. But the first church wouldn't let this happen. And so every Day. I love the authority of this language, the urgency of this language. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The message was always Jesus is the Christ. It's all about Jesus. We will stop anything and everything else, but we will not stop talking about Jesus. People need to know Jesus. And in our faith, in the powerful church, Jesus is different than he is in the powerless church. In the powerless church, they say, Jesus is a guide. In the powerful church, we say, no, he's a savior. In the powerless church, they say, Jesus is an example of faith. In the powerful church, we say, no, he's the object of faith. 
In the powerless church, they say, look, Jesus shows us how to worship. In the powerful church, we get on knee and repent and we worship him. He didn't show me how to worship. He is who I worship. In the powerless church, when the question is asked, who does the world say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? The answer will not look that much different. But in the powerful church, it will. I read Mark 5, 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching. I read that, and all I can think of in my head is like, is like they said, stop preaching, and they looked back, and they're like, we're just going to preach harder. We're not going to stop. You tell us to stop, we're going to ramp it up. You try to put us in prison, we're going to preach in prison. You let us out, we're going to go house to house. You do this, we're going to do that. And every time you try and stop, the answer is going to be, we keep preaching. And for that church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Christ will build it. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.